Hey everyone, Eric here. Very quickly before we get to our discussion today with Ye Chi from Greenpeace, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the China Africa Project. With your subscription, you'll get our email newsletter that provides the most comprehensive daily digest of everything going on in the China Africa space. News, insights, analysis, sports, culture, it's all there. So if you're following these issues for work or you're interested in Chinese foreign policy and African politics, then you're really going to enjoy this newsletter. We've made it super easy to get started. Try it out for three months for just $3. That's a great price. All you have to do is sign up at ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be stepping away from Africa and over to China to look at energy. And in part because you cannot understand a country's foreign policy unless you understand where their energy comes from, especially a country like China. China is the world's biggest energy consumer, and as a signatory to the Paris Climate Agreement, it has signed on to cap its carbon emissions by around 2030. But carbon is going to be a very difficult habit for the Chinese to break because coal in particular is extremely important to the Chinese economy. Let me just give you a snapshot of where we were in the first quarter of this year. And this is, of course, just around the time that COVID-19 broke out. So that might have skewed things a bit. This is data from the International Energy Agency. Coal was 64% of total generation. And they are planning now in the next few years between 36 and 48 gigawatts of new coal production. So that is really interesting to consider. But here's what's also fascinating to take into account. While China is the largest user of hydrocarbon energy in the world, it's also the world's largest producer of renewable energy. And it's interesting that in that mix, there are some fascinating geopolitical consequences, the things that you and I, Cobus, like to kind of think about. Back in October 2019, the Chinese government came up with something called a new energy security strategy. Now, this is very important because when you import as much energy as the Chinese do, it creates a sense of vulnerability. Uh, last year, China imported about 10.1 million barrels a day of crude oil, which met about 77% of its energy needs. Most of China's oil and natural gas imports come primarily from the Persian Gulf, Africa, Russia, and Central Asia. But here's the problem. The overwhelming majority of that oil passes through the Strait of Malacca, which is this tiny strip of water near Singapore and Malaysia. And in the event of a conflict with the United States, the Chinese are worried that that could be cut off and they would be very, very vulnerable. Last year, about 77% of China's oil imports and 10% of its natural gas imports transited through the South China Sea and the Strait of Malacca. So then you can understand why they came up with this idea of the new energy security strategy. And that has a lot to do with renewables and then reducing the amount of oil that passes through the Strait of Malacca. So what does this all have to do with Africa. So as I mentioned, when a country like China gets its energy and where it gets it from says a lot about its foreign policy priorities. And consider this, Cobus, this is my favorite statistic and 
regular listeners to the show might be getting bored of me saying it, but it's from Ambassador David Shin at George Washington University. Back in 2008, China sourced around 30% of its energy or its oil from three countries in Africa, Angola, Sudan, and the Republic of Congo. Just 10 years later, that figure plummeted to around 18%, and today it's probably even lower. Now, the top three sources of oil for China are Russia, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia. Cobus, just as it is for all countries, that changes how they see the world, and I think it's a very important part of how they see Africa today. Yes, I agree. You know, it's, it's definitely shifting their, their perspective on Africa. Um, I think it also has an, an impact on how it sees the future, you know, because um, obviously for China, the, you know, it's the, the rollout of its, of, its, um, of its influence around the world is, equals also a rollout of infrastructure around the world um, along the Belt and Road and, and definitely in Africa. So it, it, it shapes their, their kind of priorities in what kind of infrastructure they provide. Um, so it means it's, it's not only the impact of China as a country on the the global climate, which is massive, but also the kind of the impact of Chinese thinking around what kind of energy to provide that is then rolled out around the world. It's, the potential impact of this decision making is huge. With that in mind, we thought it'd be interesting for us today to look at Chinese energy market, what it's doing, how people are getting energy, what you, what inputs it's using. And for that, we invited uh, Ye Zhui Qi, a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace East Asia based in Beijing. This is the first time on the show. A very good evening to you, Zhui Qi. Hi, good evening. It's great to have you on, on the show. And we're really excited to be able to talk about this topic and really to do a deep dive into Chinese energy issues. I think let's start our conversation right now. As somebody like you who looks at the, the Chinese energy market, tell us a little bit about the breakdowns in where Chinese energy comes from and how it's being produced. Yeah, so um, I think um, Eric have mentioned a statistic earlier. It's like for the first quarter in 2020, it's about 64% of coal. Um, Basically, uh, what I'm looking at is mostly around electricity. So if it, because it's the largest uh, form of energy in China. And um, in 2019, I would say about like six, the numbers are 69%. Um, are produced by coal, so it's sound. It's a pretty significant trunk, and um, nuclear is about five uh, percent, and the rest are renewable energy, including uh, hydro, wind, and solar. Um, in which uh, hydro is the biggest chunk. It's about like eighteen percent. Um, so that's where we stand in 2019. But I'm curious, though, where does oil and gas fit into that? All of that oil that they're importing from Saudi Arabia, where does that fit in the mix? I think that because um, I was talking about electricity generation, right? So oil and gas uh, would would not go into producing electricity. Oh, that's for transportation and for industry and things like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's relevant because... China is trying to electrify, like electrification is a key strategy for the for the mid and midterm and uh, near term, because like you mentioned, in uh, increasing our national security, um, we don't want to rely so much on imports, um, and one solution to that is electrification. 
but uh, that's a long process. There's, there, it's, there are some key sectors, industrial sectors, it's hard to be electrified. Um, but it has been talked about a lot in the country. So when you when you say electrification, um, can you unpack that a little bit? Like, w- what is meant by you know kind of by by that as as a as a goal? It, it's more like a strategy and guideline. I don't um, recall like a specific goal set about electrification, but in terms of uh, we can break down like sectors that use a lot of uh, energy, like the transport was is one of them, right? Like EV is a big. Um, there's a strong push for EV in China too. And um, that's a way to reduce consumptions on oil. And in terms of um, steel and cement and other sectors, it's harder to go about it. But I know there are discussions uh, around um, electrifying that. And for anybody who hasn't been to China, it is absolutely remarkable to see how much of the transportation sector is now electrified. So buses, cars are coming there. I mean, the infrastructure is really getting in place. Most of the motorbikes are now electrified. In fact, they're incredibly dangerous because you can't hear them on the street. But they, you can see the progress and that they've gone down that road in terms of electrification. And, and the vision that they have is to be uh, fully electrified. Cities like Shenzhen in the south, uh, I don't think now you can get a license plate without having an EV. You have to pay a huge amount of money if you want to use a combustion engine, but getting a license plate, which is now required before you purchase a car, you have to have an EV. You mentioned that the breakdown in terms of renewables versus coal and some others. Where's the, What's the trend? Because we hear contradictory messages on the outside. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, we hear that China's investing huge amounts of money into renewables a lot of hydroelectric, a lot of solar, uh, and they're the largest solar producer in terms of solar panels in the world, photovoltaic solar panels in the world. We hear all of those headlines and think, wow, that's great, less carbon emissions. At the same time, it was announced that China is going to be investing in 48 gigawatts of new coal power production. And you think to yourself, huh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. And just the last data point I'll put out there, which I don't understand, and I'm hoping you can clarify, is China, as I mentioned at the top, is a signatory to the Paris Climate Accords. How can China meet its carbon emission standards and its caps by 2030 if it's investing so much in coal and is depending on coal for 64, 65% of its electricity output? How does that all fit together? Those are all really good questions. Um, I'll start with the trend and, and, and offer my, my view on this. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it sounds, it looks, it appears contradictory, but um, really China is a huge country and it's the world's factory too. So it uses so much energy and it, uh, it just has a huge demand. So if you just look at the absolute terms, regardless of coal or renewable energy, we're the biggest in the world um, of both fronts. It makes sense in the absolute terms. Um, however, if you look at the percentage in terms of in the last decade, um, I know like 60 Nine percent of coal sounds a lot to uh, in 2019, but back in 2010 we had 81 percent. So, so back then, like it was difficult for 
China has a lot of energy sectors and ex- experts um, in our decision maker circles, and to to really see China can decrease from that, like to to get rid of our addition on coal, but um, it happened in the last decade. I would call it a slow but steady progress. So um, we have dropped more than ten percent of the coal、uh, in the last decade. Um, I think it should be faster、um, in the future. And renewable,、um, in terms of wind、uh, and solar, was like less than it's like one point one seven percent back in twenty ten, and now they combine together for the first quarter in twenty twenty, it's more than ten percent for the first time. So twenty nineteen, it was like、um, probably eight. Around eight or nine percent, so it we're seeing we we're seeing the trends like renewable energy from like close to zero to becoming a、um, significant player, not like a significant, but like someone that you can't ignore anymore. Maybe like back in twenty ten, the coal guys would say, "Wow, the the renewable are are not reliable. They're just they're they're not a player." But now they 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 be they, the renewable has become a force to be reckoned with. Like you cannot ignore the trend.、Um, so that is a that's the past, like a slow but steady progress that we have made and achieved.、Um, however,、uh, like you mentioned, I I do think that we are facing a lot of recent challenge too. Um, um, here we we. It's like the new addition of coal is hardly offering any comfort to any climate observers, right? Like we,、um, the the expansion of coal, according to us, we don't think it's it's economically reasonable. It it it's only adding more stranded assets.、Um, I think it has multiple reasons behind it. I guess, like on one hand, is. Um, because of COVID nineteen, and there is a、uh, driver to grow the economy, and some of the central government has loosened the guidelines or the、uh, restrictions on building new coal, and a lot of these projects are driven by、uh, provincial government. They're trying to build more to make more money because they thought that they could,、um, but. It also has to do with the the external polit、uh, geopolitics, like、um, when national security is becoming an increasing、um, concern. Then people are trying to figure out how we can ensure more、uh, domestic supply of of、uh, electricity. So I think those are some of the reasons. Um, but we, but but we don't. We definitely don't see the need to build more.、Um, and going back to the to the topic of、um, the Paris Climate Accord,、um, China is trying to peak around twenty thirty.、Um, so we we, I think it's hard to answer.、Um, How by adding more new coal is is、uh, contributing to that goal, and our stand is we shouldn't add more.、Um, but but、uh, but I we we also want to say that like maybe the twenty thirty goal, it was like reachable. It it wasn't like a hard to 
reach uh, a goal that we need it not reachable. So I think um, people were trying to push it earlier around like twenty twenty five or something, and we still think it's possible,、um, but on the conditions that we cannot add more new coal, and then on the condition that、um, more renewable energy and more Um, EVs and and more other forms of low carbon technology needs to be developed. Where does China source all of this coal that it uses? Is it mostly domestic? I think the、uh, large、uh, chunk is domestic. There's some imports. Kobus, I think South Africa exports coal to China, if I'm, if I'm correct. And、uh, we're there's also news today that、uh, coal there's some coal exploration going on in the Huangai National Park in Zimbabwe. Which is depressing on a whole bunch of different fronts. One that it's coal, and two that it's in a national park.、Uh, but it looks like there's opportunities to source coal from Zimbabwe as well.、Uh, talking about energy imports, let me just give everybody a quick update from July. This is what uh, uh, where they got most of their oil from. Number one provider of oil is Russia, followed by Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Brazil is number four. The U.S. is number five, and U.S. imports surged by 139 percent in. Uh, July, in part, I think people are talking about that as part of the Phase One trade accord that they're trying to make up for some of the gap in that. Angola is number six, so that's the only African country there. Angola supplies went down seven and a half percent in July. Oman, Iran, Venezuela,、uh, Malaysia, and Venezuela are the top ten for where they're getting their oil from.、Uh, Drechi, let's talk a little bit about the history of of Chinese energy. So there was a deal that was made. Uh, between the Chinese government and the Chinese people early on in the reform period, which said basically, we're going to use dirty energy, we're going to pollute, and when we are wealthy enough, we will clean up, which is basically what's happening now. And there's growing frustration among China's middle class about air quality, water quality, and pollution as a whole. And the government is responding to that public opinion,、uh, but at the same time, there was that deal that was made early on in China's development. That's the same type of deal. That China is talking about with other countries. So, for example, in places like Zimbabwe, they're exporting coal-fired power plants, and they're even though that one may have been delayed, and they're building gas plants in other parts of the world. What do you think are the lessons that China can teach the world based on its experience, and whether it was worth it to do the amount of pollution that was generated in in the name of economic development? So, looking back on the experience. Was there another way to do it, or was that the only alternative? And we're trying to use that as an opportunity for other developing countries to learn from China's experience. It's a difficult questions to answer. I think we, the economic development definitely should not come in the cost of、um, environmental cost, and because it, that is really impacting people's livelihood and life quality as well. Um, I think what we can learn from China's model is,、um, is really we have been underestimating、um, renewable energy's potential.、Um, because back in twenty ten and back in maybe even like twenty thirteen, we we didn't expect、um, renewable energy to be growing as like ten percent of our electricity mix.、Um, But and and the cost is going down very fast,、uh, faster than people expected to, and grid parity is on re- like is on reach 
in China, we have about 20 gigawatt of grid parity pilot projects last year. Um, so all this is happening really fast, and, and probably we have been underestimating this in, in 2010. And um, so that's a key lesson, like in terms of new technology, new um, energy storage and renewable energy and such. Um, and it's, it's really to have a optimistic outlook in, in technology growth. And on the other hand is um, we might have been um, overestimating um, our need for coal. So we built a lot and that become a stranded assets and, and overcapacity. Um, the problem became clear around like um, 2015 or even earlier, but people are still building um, and and provincial governments are still driving a lot of new projects, so um, we so so for for a government to consider the planning of the energy sector, really um, we cannot lock in like so many coal projects that we don't need, and it's just a, a economic disaster. And now it's becoming clear that renewable energy will be cheaper. So I think that's a a very key lesson here. Um, however, on the other hand, I, I don't know about um, how Africa's people are thinking or our African countries, people are thinking about their need for energy. I think they have a say, say in whether they want the projects in their country too. It's not just their government, right? I think the people have a say in this. Kobus, what do you think? Do people, how much say do people have versus what the government wants? Um, it depends. It depends very much from country to country. Um, I think in, in some African countries, people do have a lot of say, but frequently it comes in, in the form of popular protests rather than any kind of formalized protest, pro process. I think that the problem is also is that there's, there's a strong bias, particularly, and now I'm talking from perspective of Southern Africa, that there's a strong bias in, in several Southern African countries um, that the South Africa, that that you know, kind of Africa should use its raw resources itself. Like there's this kind of drumbeat, endless kind of uh, you know theme in in African development um, discussions about how the, how important it is for African minerals to be used for African futures. And you know, Southern Africa has very large coal reserves. As as you mentioned, South Africa itself is a major coal exporter, which means that there is this kind of default idea of like, oh, you know, Africa should be shouldn't be you know kind of you know exporting its coal raw it should be using its coal for its own development not you know it should leave it in the ground um so so i think that there's a certain kind of bias amongst leaders um you know about about this um richie i I wanted to ask you a related question um what do you what do you think the the role is of china's state-owned corporations in in this this you know, kind of coal buys and also the the um, the increase in renewables are are they getting more involved in the renewable space, um, or are they do do they end up kind of being a more kind of conservative, more pro coal kind of voice in in the mix? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I, it it's very interesting because in in uh, renewable energy sector actually. Um, the the sector was majorly made up by um, non-state-owned company, like um, just regular private company. Um, 
earlier, like a- around like twenty ten to probably twenty fifteen or seventeen,、um, because it's it's a new sector, right? So a and the government has a. The strongest、uh, policy push, which is the fee and tariff, we had,、um, really just the subsidy is so strong. It attracts a lot of um, um, entrepreneurs or、uh, com- companies rushing into these sectors, and just they build, 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 and they trying to make money.、Um, however, as there is a shift.、Um, In the renewable energy sector, as a as the subsidies are phasing out,、um, because the state-owned companies enjoys more、uh, low-cost finance、uh, f- support from central banks or government,、uh, um, whereas the other、uh, regular private companies don't enjoy those. So. Um, when we're also seeing, and when we face the difficulty of the subsidy delay, um, the companies will run into、uh, cash flow problems, and then in that case, a lot of the、uh, state-owned companies are buying the renewable energy companies and buying the assets. So,、um, I would say there's a shift in inside the renewable energy sector in terms of the dominant player, and and um, and.、Uh, It's also interesting to see because in in the if you just look at one state-owned company,、uh, the Engel or, or Lens, they don't just own coal. They sometimes they own a combination of coal, gas, renewable, because they also see the trend that renewable energy is becoming a significant player, and and the they they make good money. So they diversify their portfolio, just as like BP has diversified、uh, or trying to diversify. So、um, I would say like in the renewable sector is more of a mix.、Uh, however, in the coal sector, is still mostly、uh, state-owned company. But if you look, just look at the company,、uh, major state-owned company, they can own both coal and renewable energy. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachannelreporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. How has COVID nineteen Changed all of this. What you're talking about, or has it, in terms of imports, disruptions in trade? The Chinese economy went through these gyrations in terms of shutting down and then ramping back up again. What impact has COVID nineteen had on the energy mix? It's quite interesting. We see、uh, some difference between like first quarter and the first half, which is like two quarters, right? Because in the In, it hit China pretty hard around late January and February, and then China became、um, reopening and and recover from that pretty quickly、uh, into the second quarter. So if we only look at the first quarter, we I like I mentioned before, I saw an. Uh, wind electricity generation has increased.、Um, it it got more than ten percent for the first time compared to last year, and gas consumption increased a little bit, like two percent in first quarter.、Um, 
but and but a common trend is like dropping in oil product and consumption, right? That's um, also a trend in global markets.、Um, China probably dropped twelve point nine percent in first quarter, and、um, that's pretty pretty much the. Change where the change stopped, like the end of first quarter. And if we're looking into, uh, the first half year, um, actually, uh, the oil has uh slowly reversed back, and gas continued to grow. And we are seeing that the, uh, thermal power, uh, is climbing back too, and um. And like hydro has decreased a lot by seven point three,、um, it's probably quite unique to hydro,、um, depending on the water flow of each year. But basically, by the second half,、uh, qu- second quarter,、uh, China's slowly reversing back to to、uh, the regular trend. But we're seeing some big changes in the first quarter. Very general question. Um, in in. How worried is China? And by this, I mean both the Chinese government and Chinese pub, pub, you know, public. How worried are they about global warming itself? Like Eric mentioned, the 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 political impact of of you know, kind of of dirty air, like and and visible air pollution in China. But you know, to which extent is is concern about global warming shaping China, the Chinese government's strategic thinking about the future? And to which extent is there kind of widespread Popular concern about global warming among Chinese people. I I think it, the China situation might be a little bit different from say Europe,、um, as as the everyday common people probably、um, the public awareness of global warming hasn't hit very hard. So we don't see our version of climate strikes. I know it was very popular. Uh, before COVID nineteen and and last year around many countries in the world, but、uh, in China we we didn't experience that.、Um, so, but it's not to say that I I wouldn't say Chinese people don't care. I think that people hasn't realized、um, how important it is and and how their life, their children's lives, gonna be affected. Um, in in twenty thirty years,、um, but in contrast to that is the 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 government and leadership. I do believe、um, they have seen、um, the the、uh, key decision makers have seen this as a、um, they have realized this is a a a urgency to be dealt with.、Um, it's just that they have a lot of priorities.、Um, Different challenges on hand, and in terms of where this rank,、um, it it's probably not very、uh, not as high as economic development or like um, um, tech knowledge development or or you know like uh, uh, geopolitics and and other stuff. But、uh, it's also interesting、um, situation that we don't have a lo- we don't we don't have a lot of public climate deniers. It's not like in the states where where there's a two forces fighting. One is arguing that this is true. The other is saying that this is not scientifically based.、Uh, 
um, I think in, in China, in the leadership circle and the um, the elites have believed in the science. Um, there's no denying saying that it's not going to happen. It's all fake. But um, in terms of just how how far we should go to cut the carbon and um, how to do it um, and how to really uh, negotiate internally, you know, because coal is very powerful interest group and, and so, so, so are many other high carbon sectors. So it's, it's not just, um, there, there's a lot of um, reform of uh, policies or, or, you know, the uh, structures, uh, relationships, and um, that needs to be changed in order to get us on the right track. In Copus, there's a big urban-rural divide as well, as Rachie talked about, that the common person, the average person who may be in the countryside or in uh, suburbs and things like that may not be as focused on this issue, but certainly urban elites uh, are very conscious of the fact that the air quality is not good for their children's health. They're very conscious of water being polluted and whatnot, and they see the the pollution, and that puts pressure on the government as well. Right, right. The Communist Party is in its history and its roots are in are, are in the cities, and so when urban elites in places like Shanghai, Beijing, Tianjin, and Guangzhou and these big cities uh, put pressure on their local administrations to clean up the air and the water, uh, that's very different than what, say, in the countryside and things like that. So a very complex political situation. I think it's interesting, uh, Zhui Qi, that you talked about special interests. A lot of people on the outside don't necessarily understand that China, like other governments, does have special interests that are lobbying the government, that have sway with the government. Oftentimes there's a perception that uh, the senior leadership makes a decision and that's it. But the politics, as you pointed out, are actually quite complicated. Uh, Ye Chi is a climate and energy campaigner at Greenpeace East Asia in Beijing. She follows the Chinese domestic energy market. She does a lot of research and some great writing on energy and the tech sector, which is super important right now because all those Google searches that you do, and in China, all those Baidu searches take up an incredible amount of energy. And so Zhui Chi is doing some great research on that. Uh, Zhui Chi, if people want to follow the work that you're doing, What's what's the best way for them to get in touch with Greenpeace? Feel free to follow us our uh, official website. It's just uh, greenpeace.org.cn. It's the uh, Beijing website. And you can also search Greenpeace East Asia on Google to find us. Fantastic. Zhui uh, Qi, again, is a climate and energy campaigner in Beijing for Greenpeace East Asia. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Pleasure. That was so interesting in so many ways, and I'm glad we did a really concentrated look at what's going on inside of China, because again, the impact in Africa is going to be, and it is, severe. And I think it's going to really change China's relationship with Africa. I've been saying for about a year, year and a half now, that Africa's overall importance to China is falling economically speaking, and this is why. China's using more coal, it's using more renewable, and it wants to import less from Africa, and it wants to really reduce its dependence on that Strait of Malacca. To bring home why this Strait of Malacca point is so important, uh, just this week, in fact, the United States Department of Defense released its 2020 report on military and security developments involving the People's Republic of China. So this is the annual report that the Pentagon makes about its assessment of China. And in this report, scattered all throughout it, is energy. 
It's talking about how China now is shifting its energy sourcing to the Persian Gulf in the Middle East. It's diversifying its energy sourcing, and it's really going to change its military posture to the rest of the world because China wants to protect those sea lanes that the energy flows through. That is partly the Strait of Malacca, but it's also the Indian Ocean, the Gulf of Aden, the Persian Gulf, the Mediterranean. All these points now are going to be militarized with the People's Liberation Army Navy in order to protect some of these oil supplies and these energy supplies. So if we follow what the energy trends are, we can also follow what the foreign policy is. And in that sense, one of the discernible trends is that Africa is not going to be as important. I, I, I suppose, you know, I would add to that, that um, that Africa's importance will shift towards being, a, a, you know, a major energy client of China, not not necessarily of, you know, Chinese companies providing energy to Africa, but of China providing energy generation capacity to Africa. Um, and so there it then becomes this, this kind of big question about whether, you know, as, as Rishi pointed out, you know, Chinese state-owned corporations who are the big players in energy provision in Africa are increasingly diverse diversifying what they offer um, to uh, to add a lot more renewables. So it's going to be very interesting to see, you know, kind of what Africa's choices are in relation to the kinds of energy they source from China. So this is what's confusing on that front is because people will often say that China is exporting uh, coal and dirty energy on its Belt and Road. That is partially true. We've talked about that in Zimbabwe, where the Chinese are rebuilding the Huangge power station for that's just a coal power plant and they're also the Senhua power station that we talked about the three billion dollar coal-fired power plant in northern Zimbabwe so that part is true at the same time uh, the Chinese are financing and building uh, a massive new solar power plant in Zambia so both are true at the same time so Chinese are actually bringing in a lot of renewable energy into Africa into places like Kenya where they built a giant solar farm in northern Kenya as well I think a 50 megawatt plant that was built up there last year. So again, it's very, very complex on what's coming from China to Africa. But in terms of what's going from Africa to China, uh, we also didn't put in the mix uranium. So uranium from Namibia will be a very critical export because the Chinese are really committed to nuclear energy. And then coal coming from South Africa, so and Zimbabwe potentially as well. But oil and gas, I think, is going to be one of the areas where it reduces. Let me just be very clear on the comment that I just made so there's no misunderstanding. When I say China's going to be Africa is going to be less important to China, that's in strictly economic terms. And it's not in political terms. I think overall Africa is going to be incredibly important in terms of its 54 votes at the United Nations, in terms of buying Huawei equipment, all the different reasons that we've talked about on the show for many times. Just want to make sure we're very clear on that so there's no misunderstanding. Africa will remain important, but for very different reasons. Kobus, the three things that China, that Africa, I keep getting these mixed up, that Africa sells to China breaks down to about 70% is oil, mineral, and timber, okay? If we take oil, and I think that's gas as well, out of that mix, we're looking at minerals and timber. That's not a lot. It's going to have a big impact. After all, China is the largest trading partner for most African countries. What happens when this trading relationship changes so that a lot of these resources, particularly in energy, aren't as important anymore. Well, that's a big, that's a big and important question. Um, you know, I, I think 
I think part of it is going to be that Africa is going to have to shift to what it sells. Um, and that that change has been long coming. Um, and I think also Africa is increasingly going to start selling to itself. You know, I think that's probably one of the one of the big trends is the obviously the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement is, you know, is, is potentially a, a, a really kind of landscape changing influence. Um but I think, yeah, you know, kind of, it's 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 a it's a really kind of a, it's a big open question, um, especially because so many African economies are so resource dependent. But at the same time, we're also seeing that some of the the, the African economies that are not as resource dependent, like like uh, Ethiopia and Rwanda, are also the ones that are growing the fastest. Um, so I think, you know, the the what we might see is that. You, you, you know, that might be starting at some stage to cause a sea change in thinking about how African economies should fit into the world. Um, that, you know, will hopefully happen faster, but I, I fear it will happen pretty slowly. Yeah, because at the end of the day, the big problem in a country like Nigeria is not the raw crude that it produces, it's the fact that it doesn't have the refining capacity to do something with that crude. So uh, it's amazing to me when I see the import data, which I just looked at today for Nigeria, they import fuel, and yet they're one of the largest generators of crude oil in the world because of the refining capacity. So that that does put a little bit of hamper on that intra-Africa trade, is that in order to trade, you have to actually trade a finished product as opposed to a raw product. So adding up that processing is really important. That's a, that's a very big issue. I, but I, at the same time, I think that African policymakers are increasingly getting quite bullish on renewables. Um, I think renewables have, have increased. Um, you know, I was I was at a, a big, um, like, you know, energy sector-focused kind of investor conference late last year. Um, and that was really the, the tone there. Like, people, people were saying that, you know, kind of a lot of African policymakers increasingly don't even want, you know, the, I think South Africa and, and Zimbabwe are exceptions. Like, a lot of other countries don't even want to talk about coal um, and they they are pushing ahead with more solar because the thing is that of course the one thing that Africa has in abundance is sunshine um, there's almost no country in Africa that has that has kind of a, a, a you know a dominantly cloudy kind of climate so you know you do see a lot of of rural kind of areas in Africa also starting to push solar um, because because it would then like you know release them from a whole bunch of other things that they that they're dealing with including the difficulties of setting up grids. Um, so I think th there's potential, I think, for, for positive development. But, you know, I, I think actors like China and, and where, where, the, where they're kind of willing to invest and what they're willing to finance is going to play a big role. And in fact, Kenya in many ways is really the case study that we should be looking at where they are almost entirely from renewables, their energy mix. And they just announced uh, a trash-based energy production. So they're going to extract gas out of trash and turn that into energy energy, which is very exciting to be able to recycle some of that waste as well. Uh, quickly before we go, so we've talked about Africa. Uh, at the same time, the shift that you and I have been tracking in our newsletter is this move towards Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, uh, and into the Persian Gulf for oil. That presents a whole different set of problems because not only will China now be much more intertwined in the politics of the region, which are very complex, obviously, that goes back for a long time, but also they're going to be bumping up against the United States in that region. What do you think the forecast is in terms of China being able to manage the Sunni-Shia divide, the U.S. Uh, uh, Middle East problems, and then, of course, the Arab-Israeli divide? I mean, there's so many complex kind of pieces in that jigsaw puzzle up there. What do you, what's your forecast there? 
you know, I don't put a lot of credit in my own forecast in, in this, you know, because there's so many different variables in the air. But at, at the same time, I wonder if, if maybe this is the optimist speaking, but like, I wonder if some of these complications might not have the the um, the impact of actually pushing China more towards renewables, simply because it's it's more manageable, um, and also because in the longest, you know, like China is nothing if it's not you know fo- focusing on the long game. You know, that's always a cliche about China. It always that the idea that it always plays a long game, and the long game with oil is oil is over. Like you know, oil is dead. It's it's it. It might not look dead at the moment, but it's going to be dead soon. Um, and you know, so so that's gonna that's gonna with oil is also goes the strategic importance of the Middle East as a region. Um, you know, so then after you know once 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 energy mix is more balanced, then it it raises questions. But why bother with this with this very very difficult very volatile region at all? Um, why bother with with having kind of tankers go through choke points when you could just like when you could just deal with the sun? You know, I think I think that in the end becomes as as renewables becomes become more robust in in the energy mix. That become a lot. Those questions become a lot more realistic. I think. So where goes the energy? Goes the foreign policy, and that then goes the priorities. That was our discussion today. I'm so glad we had the chance to do that. Uh, we talk about these things in the minutia detail every single day in our daily email newsletter. If this is the kind of thing that you're interested in terms of tracking Chinese energy use, where it's getting its energy from, the sources, the the layout, and all of the different politics that go around with it, I highly encourage you to give our newsletter a try. We've got a new promotion, $3 for three months. Get it every day for, for a few months. See if you like it. Uh, we hope that you will. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Any questions you have about it, Kobus and I are super easy to get a hold of. Uh, Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com or Kobus at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And I will generally give you back a super long email if you write me. So I really love interacting and engaging with folks and uh, so and hearing your feedback to the show and also to the newsletter and any questions that you may have. So we'd love to hear from you. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>